0: I will call upon you to do a service for me Play the Godfather Now at Chumpacasino.com Welcome to the family No purchase necessary VGW Group Voidware prohibited by law 18 plus Terms and conditions apply Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon Including our Commodore class That's Commodore's Mananan, Kinway, Toves Loining Two-Gun Tony Drunken Dak Redbeard Eric the Red the Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. There is a concept in the study of world history called the general crisis. In the broadest terms, it's a theory, or really rather a series of theories, trying to answer why there were so many conflicts and revolutions and Just a bunch of chaos from roughly the time Christopher Columbus set sail until about the American Civil War. The overriding theory seems to surround what they call the Little Ice Age, a period of climate change that led to crop failures and famine and general unrest all around the world. Then again, it could also be the technological explosion that gave the world guns and ships and disrupted economic systems the world over. Or maybe it's the printing press and a rise in literacy rates, all of which, of course, led to the Reformation and all of the social unrest that followed that. Personally, and I'm not alone in this, I think that it's got a little bit of all of that, all combined to build this perfect storm of unrest and war and revolution. Now, the general crisis was a global phenomenon, but it's centered in Europe, which, you know, kind of makes sense. It was the era of imperialism and global empires, so those European problems sort of spread over into all of their colonial holdings. But today we're not going to look at the global general crisis. We're going to narrow that field down The French general crisis began with the Reformation and the wars of religion, and it includes everything we've talked about so far, including the Fronde. But the Fronde was an internal conflict, a civil war, and today we're looking at international affairs. Affairs that are going to bring us right up to the eve of the Nine Years' War. This is episode 147, The Sun ...was high. Let's talk for a minute about the Great Man Theory. Capital G, capital M Great Man Theory. It's an old-fashioned theory, outdated even, so, you know, it kind of fits pretty well with the general crisis. But there are two things we need to remember about the Great Man Theory. First, we should acknowledge that the entire idea is inherently flawed due to the exclusion of women... I mean, Cleopatra, Queen Isabella, or Catherine the Great, obviously they should all be on that list. Not to mention the French women that we've talked about in this story. Anne of Austria, the Queen Mother, and Anne-Marie d'Orléans, most of all. And second, we should remember the old maxim, that the great men are almost always bad men. And that should include the women who should be on the list— even Queen Elizabeth, who happens to be my personal favorite. But that is to say that it's an old-fashioned use of the word great. It means, you know, majestic or larger than life, but not necessarily good. The great men were militarists and imperialists. They were defenders and perpetrators of slavery and subjection all around the world. And some of them, if that's not enough, were just undeniably, unquestionably evil. Now, three names tend to jump to mind when the concept of the Great Men, capital G, capital M, is broached. Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, and Napoleon Bonaparte. They're kind of the trinity, aren't they? And of course, each successive name would have been very, very proud to be included in that trinity. But it's hardly a complete list. I mean, who could deny Genghis Khan's place on it, or Charlemagne's? They fit all of the criteria perfectly. Unfettered imperialistic growth? Check. The expansion of their personal power? Check. And the personal leadership of the armies that gave them those first two criteria? Check and check. But that third criteria, the personal leadership of their armies, really narrows down the great man field. It turns it into almost a greatest man list, in that old sense of the word. But being a commander of an army was something that won a lot of hearts and minds. And I personally don't think that military commanders should ever be able to translate that power into political authority not to say that military commanders should never hold political office i mean i like ike and teddy roosevelt both of whom were military commanders but i'm a i'm a will of the people guy not a military coup kind of guy but that third criteria excludes a lot of the people who should and often are included on the great man list None of the women who we mentioned were commanders in the field, except, I suppose, for Anne-Marie de Bourbon, who, as I've said, was amazing. But that would also exclude other names. For example, and this is who I had in mind when I made the undeniably evil remark, someone like an Adolf Hitler. He was the commander-in-chief of a military dictatorship, yes, but... He wasn't a field marshal. And that goes for a ton of less evil characters, a bunch of presidents and prime ministers and even kings. But of course, that brings the leader that we're talking about today into question. Does Louis XIV belong on the great man list? And he did occasionally lead troops in battle and he was the commander-in-chief, but he wasn't a general, he wasn't a marshal. However, his kingdom was nearly always at war when he was king, and those wars usually stemmed directly from King Louis's plans. Beyond that, they also almost always concerned the very same tiny sliver of land that has obsessed armies, all the way back to ancient Rome. Those are, of course, the regions of northeast France, known as Alsace, and franche comte and Lorraine, as well as Flanders, and modern-day Belgium. In the time of our story, though, it was known as the Spanish Netherlands. Now, we know the story of the Spanish Netherlands up until King Louis came to the throne. Spain occupied the entire Netherlands until the Dutch Revolt under William the Silent. That's the story of the Z-Rovers. That's, of course, when Elizabeth intervened and the Spanish Armada attempted to invade England and Francis Drake, along with a bunch of others, fought them off. But it's the French side of that story that we need to focus on today. Henry IV of France signed the Triple Alliance with Elizabeth and William of England and the Netherlands. That was what set the stage for the Thirty Years' War. Now, we're not going to revisit that conflict, but suffice it to say that most of the fighting that involved France during the Thirty Years' War was concentrated in that area of northeast France, Alsace and Lorraine franche Comté, and the regions of the Holy Roman Empire called the Rhineland. And that fighting continued even after the Thirty Years' War and the Eighty Years' War were both concluded in 1648. That's the Franco-Spanish War, which lasted until just about the time that Cardinal Mazarin died and King Louis XIV took up the reins of power. And the treaty that ended the Franco-Spanish War gave King Louis a lot of what he wanted in that region of northeast France. He won a lot of territory from the Spanish Habsburgs. However, he still, rather France, still did not possess what Louis considered her natural border. He wanted to control the land all the way to the Rhine. However, The war was over. It was a time for peace. King Louis was young and rich and powerful and handsome and charming. He took this opportunity to consolidate his gains and to enjoy the benefits of rule. He hosted parties for all of the great names of France. He hosted and attended dances and balls. Culturally, he did a lot for France. He really pushed opera to the fore in French society. Before then, it had been mostly an Italian occupation. He patronized writers and poets and playwrights all across France. He also, beyond the cultural stuff, engaged in some backroom deals to secure the Stuart restoration to the English throne. We know that story as well. But most important, King Louis the fourteenth. took the time to find a suitable wife. He had a number of prospective wives, one of whom we'll talk about in some detail later, but the woman who won the hand of King Louis the fourteenth. was Maria Theresa, the Infanta of Spain. Maria Teresa and King Louis would not be married until after the conclusion of the Franco-Spanish War, but she was a powerful tool in the negotiations that led to the end of that war. However, not as we might expect, not for Spain. She was a powerful tool for France. Whenever the Spanish king, Maria Teresa's father, appeared to be wavering on this point or that point during the negotiations, all that Louis had to do was set up a meeting in some other kingdom that had a marriageable daughter. Even better, if the kingdom had an anti-Habsburg bias. He didn't even have to attend that meeting, just set it up, and Spain would all of a sudden return to the table with her tail between her legs. The only point on which Spain stood absolutely resolute was the question of inheritance rights. Maria Theresa, upon her marriage to King Louis XIV, renounced all of her claims of inheritance to land and titles and money in any Spanish holding. Not only Maria Theresa, but all of her descendants had to adhere to that. To put it bluntly, the Spanish did not want to accept a marriage in which the Bourbon dynasty would ever have any claim on the throne or lands of Spain. That's a lot to ask in a marriage alliance. But in return, the Spanish agreed to pay France a dowry equal to 500,000 gold crowns. The French AQ, or French crown, was a relatively new coin, named for the image of the king on one side and the crown on the other. The French crown replaced the traditional gold franc, and due to minting standards that had been enacted by Cardinal Richelieu, the EQ was worth somewhere between four to ten francs. The French EQ replaced the Spanish doubloon as the most common gold coin in Europe, and it replaced a German coin as the most valuable gold coin, by weight at least. Suffice it to say, the IQ was a spectacular piece of coinage, and 500,000 of them was a huge amount of money to pay for a dowry. But it wasn't unreasonable for the forfeit of inheritance rights, a large part of the reason you would marry a foreign princess in the first place. And besides, even though it was a huge amount of money, the Spanish Empire was giant, and the Americas were full of rich gold mines that belonged to Spain, so no problem, right? Even beyond that, because Louis was such a nice guy, he said that he would accept payment in Spanish Pieces of eight that is, silver, or in gemstones, should the raw gold be hard to come by. But Spain's vast riches were not quite as vast as she let on. Spain's coffers were larger than any other in Europe, it's true, but due to the centuries of warfare and their foolishly mismanaged and unregulated expansion policy, The Spanish coffers emptied almost as soon as they were filled. The crown of Spain would never have admitted it to anyone, outside of the Pope maybe, but they were broke. It wasn't poverty. The Spanish crown was still the kind of broke that got to eat off of gold plates and sleep on silk, the kind of broke that the Vatican would still happily loan huge amounts of money— ...but the crown was broke when compared to nearly every other throne in Europe. Now, I don't like spreading baseless conspiracy theories, despite my history of having done so. So I'm going to preface this by saying that this is probably not what actually happened. Largely because the French crown was incapable of orchestrating something this intricate. But isn't it funny that right at the very moment that the Spanish Empire needed to come up with what we would consider billions of dollars, right at that moment is when the crown decided to begin persecuting Huguenots and sexual deviants and debtors and prostitutes and all of their undesirables to such a level that they were forced to flee French shores. Now, I'm not saying that once those undesirables did flee France, that the crown maybe clandestinely urged their colonial governors to encourage the riffraff to sail off for Tortuga, where they could engage in unfettered piracy against the Spanish, who, remember, were currently scrabbling to come up with all the gold and silver they could muster. I mean, that's not the sort of thing that anybody in good standing would suggest. That would be crazy. But even if that wasn't the plan, it did still happen, and it did serve French interests. It allowed them to set down colonial roots on what was definitively Spanish soil, without dirtying anyone in power's hands. Those riffraff, those undesirables, were, after all, only pirates. And, to the point, it made the collection of that massive dowry All the more difficult. When you have to transport your entire treasury across seas that are currently infested by pirates, that makes getting that money dangerous. And the French buccaneers on Tortuga were consummate pirates, but the English did their part as well. Of course, that's the entire history of the Brethren of the Coast and Henry Morgan. But back in England and France there's henrietta stuart henrietta of england now henrietta of england was king louis's first cousin many of you will remember her she was the sister of charles the 2nd and james the 2nd she lived in the court there at paris when the stuarts were in exile during the reign of cromwell she was a catholic an open catholic and in her youth, she very nearly married King Louis. She was one of those prospective wives. However, Anne of Austria nixed that. Instead, Henrietta of England married Louis's brother, the new Duc d'Orléans. Will and Ariel Durant describe the Duc d'Orléans, quote, "...a little round-bellied man on high-heeled shoes who loved feminine adornments and masculine forms." As brave as any knight in battle, but as painted, perfumed, beribboned, and bejimmed as the vainest woman in the vainest land. End quote. In case you can't read between those thoroughly 1950s lines, the Duc d'Orléans was gay. That served Louis's interest, though. That's a good way to keep Henrietta of England close, and in the family without the trouble of a husband who might actually fall in love with her. Now, King Louis appears to have genuinely fallen for Henrietta of England, and Henrietta appears to have loved him back, but not romantically. She considered him, like Charles and James, her brother. But still they spent their days dancing and dallying in the gardens and taking long boat rides, Even if there was no romantic aspect to their relationship, everyone in France believed there was. Henrietta of England was behind the secret Treaty of Dover that brought King Charles and King Louis closer together and promised King Charles would declare his Catholicism to all of Europe. Of course, that never came to pass. But that secret Treaty of Dover brings us back to the topic of war. After a few years of what appears to have been a loveless political marriage through which Louis drowned his sorrows with Henrietta's babysitter, the dowry for the marriage was still not paid. Spanish finances were in shambles and they would not have been able to pay regardless, but the explosion in piracy in the mid-1660s was a factor. Both in Spain's inability to pay the dowry and in the heightened international tensions. This leads us to the War of Devolution. It's an interesting war in terms of early modern military history, and it shows us the Marshal General of France, we met him last time, Turin, at his very best. But even still, the war itself isn't particularly relevant. However, Louis's reasons for entering the war as well as the Treaty of Aix-la-Chapelle, were important. The war wasn't about the money. France was doing just fine, thank you very much. Really, it was about territory. And not just the acquisition of more territory, but land that was strategically important to France. As long as other rival and even enemy nations held the western bank of the Rhine, France was vulnerable to invasion, and they were losing out on valuable trade and tax revenue that they would make from the river. So once again, France went to war, while England and the Netherlands and Sweden all signed a new triple alliance against the French. They weren't technically allied with the Spanish, as none of them very much liked Spain, but they fought on the same side. Now, of course, over in the West Indies, governors were issuing letters of marque, and for a minute it looked like the tide might actually turn against France, at least the French in the Caribbean. But the pirates just turned to their old ways and went back to attacking the Spanish. Now, that's not how it worked back on the continent. That triple alliance was a sign of something, maybe of a a growing attitude or at least a trend in European diplomacy. France's king, over and over again, would do something that would grow his kingdom and his personal power, and he would even do so at the expense of the Habsburgs, who nobody liked that wasn't a Habsburg. But over and over again, Louis found himself doing that alone. His allies melted away every time he engaged in what was widely seen as an unjust war. Now, the War of Devolution was a land war. For the most part, so there's not a whole lot to talk about that we haven't already discussed that's relevant to the pirates. Except for one thing a tactic that King Louis was very fond of and that worked out well for him every time he used it. The first army that Louis engaged in the War of Devolution, the army under the Marshal General Turin, had a flurry of victories in the Spanish Netherlands. He captured city after city, and he manned them all with soldiers from his army. Now, that might look like a win, and it was, but it also wasn't. At this point, the fortress cities in the region were important. They were necessary to hold territory, but the only way to win a war was with a mobile army. An army that could fight battles rather than sieges, which is something that Turin was fond of. It was kind of a maxim of his. Battles, not sieges. But at this point, Turin's army was spread out in a ton of different fortress cities through which siege was the only way to win. Any concentrated push by the Triple Alliance had the ability to topple all of Turin's and France's gains, and they could have done so in a few weeks. But this was the plan. Louis wanted to spread his first army, his royal army, under Turin, he wanted to spread them out thin and take those cities. That was the goal. And he knew he wouldn't win the war, but Louis had a second army. And he sent them to war, but not to aid Turin. Instead, he sent them to an entirely separate piece of land, south of where Turin's forces were. That second army, led by Le Grand Condé we remember him, marched on the territory of franche comte That was at the time the southernmost region of the Spanish Netherlands, although part of it belonged to the Holy Roman Empire. Now, Le Grand Condé performed a similar feat to that of Turin. He defeated the armies in the region and then captured a bunch of different forts and spread his forces out very thin. But, at this point, now that he held two large pieces of territory louis declared his willingness to come to the table he was willing to negotiate what would become the treaty of aix la chapelle now in those negotiations louis was compelled or maybe agreed to give franche comte back to the spanish but in return for giving that large and valuable piece of land back to spain He got to keep most of his gains up in the north, those gains that Turin had already captured. And those, well, they'd been his real goal the entire time. I mean, he could have sent that second army up to aid Turin. Le Grand Condé and Turin hated each other, but they would have fought together on the king's orders. But that would lead to a drawn-out engagement, a long war in which a lot of soldiers and civilians would be killed. He would essentially be feeding his manpower into the meat grinder. Instead, he captured that second piece of territory and then gave it up. And that allowed everyone in this negotiation to save face. And still, even though Louis kind of lost the war, he still got exactly what he wanted. And he did so without a significant loss of life. And it's right here that suggests to me that King Louis Fourteenth does belong in the ranks of the great men. He had this ability to fuse military might, which France had in spades, with diplomacy and common sense, which Louis had in spades. And he also knew how to use those to play on the pride of the other rulers and nobles all across Europe. It was It was stunning. And he would do this stuff over and over again. Even when France looks like they lost a war, which they kind of just did, Louis gets what he wants. It's brilliant. But of course, the rest of Europe wasn't stupid. They weren't blind. They knew what Louis was up to. But every time that Louis backed them into that corner, they had to accept it. This worked out for Louis. But the gulf between France and the rest of the world diplomatically at least, widened. But that brings us to 1668. Now, were we talking about Louis' personal life here, or French society in general, this would be the time in which the great artists and famous writers that many of us know began to blossom. When French drama, poetry unseated the great Shakespeare, they became the defining literary movements in Europe. It's when the salons really began to show the power of women in politics and of manners. When Frankish, Gallic Catholicism for a time outshone the Habsburgs in Germany and Spain and even for a moment overawed the Vatican. When the French Empire began to expand to include places like Saint-Domingue, There were colonies in the East Indies and the West Indies. He had a lot of colonies in Madagascar, or at least some of the most significant islands around Madagascar, and of course, Louisiana. And not just the state of Louisiana, everything that was eventually sold to the United States in the Louisiana Purchase. And if you really want to annoy people from Michigan, or Missouri, or Louisiana, feel free to point out that some of their most famous cities are actually called... Detroit and Saint-Louis, and of course, Nouveau-Orléans. But all of that imperial stuff is really a story that can be shelved until we're back with the pirates. For now, though, we're still talking about French foreign policy and war. The next war, the war that followed, the devolution, that would be the largest war since the Thirty Years' War and it was the last in which Turin would serve as Marshal General. The Franco-Dutch War, which has been a defining conflict in our entire story, was Turin's crowning achievement. His very last campaign, his campaign into the Rhineland, through franche comte and deep into the territory of the Holy Roman Empire, that campaign was nothing short of amazing. In that campaign... Turin faced who would be seen as his foil, his greatest rival really, and in this war his really only rival. That was the figure of Monte Caccioli. Now, when those two commanders faced off against one another, it was never one-sided, it was this beautiful game of chess. There were two expert commanders vying and maneuvering for position, and they were at it for hours, moving soldiers all day long. Sometimes, when they were at their best, they would, on both sides, have almost no casualties, because neither could get a leg up on the other. However, whenever one of those commanders forced the other into an engagement, it always turned into one of the great, pivotal battles of the war. But Turin, in those great, pivotal battles, won a lot more than he lost and he adapted all throughout this all throughout all his campaigns but all throughout this campaign to the terrain and to his enemy's tactics he learned from his mistakes and got better because of it this campaign into the holy roman empire saw france at the greatest continental territorial extent she had ever known and the greatest she would ever know until napoleon after Alexander and Caesar, Turin was probably the single greatest influence on Napoleon Bonaparte. He was certainly his greatest tactical, military influence. And Turin was a field marshal worth admiring. He believed in mobility and maneuverability rather than entrenchment or fortification, that old maxim. I remember learning in elementary school that during the American War for Independence, tactics were simple. Two armies would stand across a field from one another and open fire. Now that was how some battles were fought, especially when they were commanded by bad leaders. But someone like Turin was always on the move, always looking for advantage, and usually he managed to find it. And that might seem obvious to us, but at the time it was novel. He utilized the kind of tactics that we see in smaller engagements. The one that comes to my mind is Henry Morgan at the gates of Panama. In fact, we see tons of pirates using tactics like this, but Turin used them on a grand military scale. One of those highly mobile chess matches was one by Turin. He forced his adversary into an encounter. Now, winning that chess match meant that he forced him to fight, not that he won the battle. The Battle of Salzbach was shaping up to be one of the largest and most consequential battles of the entire war, and Turin definitely had the advantage here. But in the opening salvo, perhaps in the very first volley, the Marshal General of France was struck by a cannonball, and killed. Now this battle that might have forced the Habsburgs into a full retreat instead turned into a French retreat. It wasn't a rout, it was an orderly retreat, but the French army was incapable of unifying under any single commander or any single plan. Later on, the infantry would condemn their commanders who they said were honored for abandoning Turin's gains and for running It was one of the greatest defeats of the war on the side of France. Still, though, even after Turin died, the conflict went on. Those commanders who took over for the Marshal General fortified the Rhine. They held the natural border that King Louis wanted and managed not to lose any of it, although many of those gains into the Rhineland were lost. In the north, the other major front in the war, the French army pushed into Spanish and Dutch territory to what are essentially the modern borders of France. This was a very favorable position for France. However, it should be noted that those privateers empowered by colonial governors all over the world played a major role in the victory of France. They pushed the other colonial powers into a corner and brought them to the bargaining table. The peace of Nijmegen granted France all of the formerly Habsburg territory of franche comte that territory that they had failed to win in the last war. They also secured France's gains in the north, her current modern borders. In return, France had to give up some of her Italian or genuine territorial gains in the south, which were her largest losses, But on paper, that was definitely a French victory. But that wasn't the reality of the Peace of Nijmegen. England, as I'm sure we all remember, abandoned the secret and open treaties of Dover and switched sides during the conflict, against the wishes of the king, but at the insistence of the parliament. The English allied with the Spanish and Austrian Habsburgs, as well as the Netherlands. Some of their oldest and fiercest enemies against the French. France, diplomatically speaking, after the Franco-Dutch War, was an island. They were diplomatically isolated, in the extreme, but I don't want you to take that to mean that France was some kind of rogue state, they weren't North Korea. Everyone may have been angry at France, but that didn't change the fact that France was, once again, victorious. She enjoyed the spoils of war and the splendor of victory. All of those pleasures that King Louis was known to enjoy, you know, the opera and the theater and the arts, all of the colonial goods that were flowing in into France, the sugar and the tobacco, and, of course, the balls and the dances and the women. In all of that, Louis began to indulge. It was at this point, almost immediately following their victory, that Louis began the restoration and the expansion of his father's hunting lodge. Now that might seem small until we realize that that humble hunting lodge would become one of the most famous palaces in all of history, the Palace of Versailles. Go online and see if you can find a picture of the equestrian statue made in commemoration of King Louis after the Peace of Nijmegen. It's a fantastic piece of artistry, that's true. But what it says about the king, he's beautiful. He's got a fantastic mustache, which was the style in France at the time, thanks mostly to Louis himself. He's got these flowing curls that remind you of Alexander the Great or Jim Morrison. But on top of those curls, he's wearing a laurel wreath a style that harkens back to ancient Roman emperors. In fact, he's wearing Roman imperial military dress. It's not sending a subtle message about his power or his might. King Louis stood astride the world. And everyone, even the most fervent enemies of King Louis XIV, envied his glory. And they all attempted to emulate his splendor. Those who could wore their hair, like Louis. They hired famous French painters and sculptors and artisans. And even though those were among some of the most talented, some of the greatest artists in all the world, they were still second to those that Louis personally employed. Now, they used these artists to adorn their own palaces in French art and architecture, and some of those are gorgeous works, but they still pale in comparison to Versailles. The women all across Europe began to wear French dresses, and, if they enjoyed any sort of social standing at all, only French dresses. Courts all around Europe attempted to match the French in their amours and courtly drama and their infidelity. And even in that, everyone paled in comparison. In Paris, it was expected that any woman of rank have at least one extramarital lover, and that was a bare minimum the women of Paris preferred to have a selection of men who could fulfill whatever their sexual and intellectual and political desires might be on that day. In any given retinue, we might find a sensitive poet, a dashing fencer, a thoughtful philosopher, a brave knight, a powerful political minister, and some of them even a priest. A priest who could hear their sins while helping them create new ones. One Parisian writer observed these dalliances, quote, in any town are the husbands as patient as they are here, end quote. But of course we shouldn't feel too bad for the husbands. I mean, who do you think made up all of those lovers? That is, of course, unless the king took their wife to bed. More than once King Louis sent some noble husband with an ancient and powerful name, back to their home in a carriage adorned with a cuckold's horns. Meanwhile, Louis would take every liberty with their wives, until, invariably, he sent those women back to their homes with a new illegitimate child, a child who would invariably be raised to the blood and into their stepfather's old rank in preference over their own natural-born children, As you might imagine, this upset a lot of husbands, but what were they to do? This was King Louis XIV, the most powerful and influential man in the world. I think it's indisputable at this point that King Louis XIV of France belongs in that great man-club, perhaps even alongside the Trinity, Alexander, Caesar, and Napoleon. Will and Ariel Durant describe the king, quote, this was the zenith of the Roi-Soleil. Not since Charlemagne had France been so extended or so powerful. Immense and costly spectacles celebrated the successes of the Sun King. The Council of Paris officially declared him Louis Le Grand. Le painted him as a god on the vaults of Versailles. A theologian argued that Louis's victories proved the existence of God. The populace idealized its ruler and took pride in his apparent invincibility. Leibniz hailed him as that great prince who is the acknowledged glory of our time. All educated Europe began to speak his language and imitate his court, his arts, his ways. The sun was high. Will and Ariel Durant always chose their words with care. It's part of what I love about them. There's a poetry to their writing not found in modern histories. And when they said that this was the zenith of the Wa Salay of the Sun King, that's not a mistake. When the sun is at its zenith, at the highest point in the sky, what does that mean? Yes, it has spent all morning rising and sent all shadows into hiding, however, once the sun is at its zenith, it must inevitably begin its decline. Next time, we're going to discuss the War of the Reunions, and we're going to get to the outbreak of the Nine Years' War. And in doing so, we're going to return to those imaginary French sailors we talked about last time. I wanted to work them into today's show, but in doing so, it grew into an entirely unmanageable work of what was essentially historical fiction. Fun, but unnecessary. However, they will be key to our story moving forward. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon everybody who has signed up to support the show through the website, everybody who has left us a rating or a review, and everybody who has recommended this show, online or in real life, and I hope some of you recommended the show to your family over the holidays, without all of you, this show wouldn't be possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.